This is the Church Security Made Simple podcast, giving leaders practical solutions to help make your community safer. I'm your host, Simon Osmo, and I'm on a mission to keep his churches safe. Now, it's been over 10 years since the Lord called me into security ministry, and as a national church safety practitioner supporting churches across the country, I'll share my expertise to give you simple solutions to keep your church safe. So if you're ready to make your church security simple, come join me and let's dive into this week's episode as we learn how to plan, prepare and protect our ministries. Well, Mike, let's start a conversation then. So tell us a little bit about your background and then lead up into the work where you're doing with with Grossman and then we'll start talking about some church security stuff. So Tell us about your time in law enforcement. All right. Well, I had been a, a police officer, a detective in Arizona for 21 years, and I had done a lot of roles um, within that agency. So I had started out as a field training officer after a few years in patrol, and then I started training new guys and just showing them how to stay safe and how to make arrests, how to develop sources on the street, that type of deal. And then I became a patrol sergeant where I had my own squad. I thoroughly enjoyed that. I do think there's a burden of leadership when people are under your command and now you're watching out for them. It's one thing to watch out for yourself, but now to care about other people and then to teach them and to make sure that they have the right skills. I enjoyed that role as well. I served on our SWAT team. We had a part-time SWAT team, not a full-time, and I did that for eight years and I was the point man on our SWAT team. So that's, you know, first guy through the door and- um, You were the brave one then. Or- Or Bravest or or, or silliest one maybe, depending on which way you look at it. Yeah, so I mean, I was always into sports and I was always a competitor and I wanted to see the action. I didn't want to get hurt or I didn't want to hurt someone, but the first person through the door, yeah, you're entering the fatal funnel and, You know, they do things a lot different now. It was more dynamic back then. Now it's more surrounding call out and a lot safer, a lot more technology with the gas and the drones and the dogs and robots, all those type of deal. But I found my calling at the police department in investigations. I thoroughly enjoyed going after bad guys and giving them my full attention. And so I would get a case on my desk where somebody was victimized. Initially, I worked property crimes, the burglaries and the thefts. And it's amazing how violated somebody feels when somebody, you know, breaks in and steals their things that they worked hard for. And then I kind of morphed into working drug cases. I worked drug cases for a number of years, worked on a DEA task force, larger scale investigations. And then the remainder of my career, I worked in violent crimes. So investigating all the shootings, there was a home invasion, any type of aggravated assaults, certainly homicide, and all cases are serious and all cases affect victims in different ways. But going after and hunting down truly bad guys that actually wanted to go around society and physically hurt somebody, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed getting them back to the station and interviewing them. It's one thing to get a guy into custody. It's another thing to get him to 
confess to the crime and provide the details as to why he did it. And then it's even more to have him write out a confession, maybe apologizing to the victim. And so wrapping that all up, putting a good case together for prosecution so the person could, in most of those cases, uh, go to prison and the victim gets some justice and some closure. Yeah, there's a lot of things in there that you said. And first, it's very true about leadership. I think there's an English saying, which I think has gone universal, is heavy lays the head but wears a crown. Actually being at the top of the funnel and being the leader, there's a lot of depth responsibility. There's a lot of stress. There's a lot of strain that comes with it. And when I used to work in corporate America as a young girl, in her sort of 20s and all she wanted to do was climb, climb, climb and she was ever wanting to climb the ladder and I used to say to her, you know, don't don't climb too early because if you don't have the experience or the knowledge to support you, once you get up there, it's a very lonely and isolated place and actually during COVID, she, she rang me up and she said, Simon, she said, you were right, I took this leadership role and she said, I realised that I'd missed a few steps and, you know, not only can I apologise but also can you come back and mentor me and help and it was heavy lays the head that wears a crown. Being a, being a leader can be a lonely lonely role sometimes, right? I have seen that. I've seen it where officers want to become a sergeant right away and the sergeant wants to become the lieutenant and the lieutenant wants to be the commander. And they see it as, hey, I don't have to go out and arrest people anymore. I don't have to write reports anymore. I get more money. But then it comes time for a big decision and you either own it or you blame somebody else for it. And sometimes yeah, these it. guys that have climbed so fast, don't have the experience, don't understand the gravity of the decisions that they're making. Yeah. Some people go, Hey, it's good to be the king, but yeah. there's a lot that comes with that. A lot of responsibility. Yeah, there is. And it's one of those, you know, listening to everyone in the room, giving them an opportunity to sort of have some input, but ultimately say, you know, I am the leader. I've got to make this decision. And sometimes your decision is different than what the sort of the troops and team want you to do. That's, it is heavy lays the head that wears the crown. Yeah. And so, Mike, so now you sort of left law enforcement, I guess, retired from law enforcement. And we'll just touch on your, your famous boss for a while. So you work for Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grace for, you know, very well respected. How did you then move from law enforcement to sort of being his chief of staff? Yeah, so that was a, a unique opportunity for me. I certainly had plenty of ideas of what I wanted to do when I retired from law enforcement. I thought I would go into corporate America, be a head of investigations at a large corporation or something like that. I didn't expect to be in this role, but it's interesting. I truly believe that God has a purpose for our lives and he knows what's going on sometimes when, you know, we don't and he has other plans and ideas to shape us and put us where he wants us. And so I saw an ad on LinkedIn from Colonel Grossman asking to have somebody be in his office. I knew the name. I had never been to one of his conferences. At that time, I had never read any of the books, but I knew the name. I knew the sheepdog model. I lived that model as a police officer myself, a father, a husband. I was the sheepdog and I got this sign behind me, a guy that I worked for um, in retirement, he made me this sign that says that very thing. And so I reached out to Lieutenant Colonel Grossman. He responded right away, asked a bunch of questions about who I was, what I believed, asked me to come see his operation, which I did. And there's a, a few things that I suggest uh, to him, one being, hey, let's uh, rebrand the company. Let's call it Grossman on Truth. Yeah, He's written books. Name. You pay for your salary just there. That is a great name to, to rebrand as Grossman on Truth. 
Yeah, because what we're giving people, we want to tell people the truth. There's so much disinformation, misinformation in our world today, depending on what your political bent is. Um, and people are not telling the truth. And, you know, the things I'm seeing on the news sometimes and then the things that I'm seeing with my eyes, they're not adding up. And so we want to tell people the truth. And Colonel Grossman, as you know, does a presentation called The Bulletproof Mind, and he helps people to become resilient. And in their moment of truth, maybe a deadly force encounter, that how are they going to respond? Are they going to cower in the face of that, or are they going to stand up and be resilient? Not that anyone's looking to get into a fight. That's not what he teaches at all. But you better be prepared mentally. You better think about it ahead of time. What actions will I take? How will I protect my family? How will I, as a law enforcement officer, respond to that hot tone or that emergency crime in progress? And so, yeah, I was the one that was, I lived for the hot tone. When that would go off and I would race and try to be the first one there. Nowadays, we have officers that, man, I don't know if I should uh, go fast to this call or if I should no. wait. I feel like sometimes they drive around the block a little bit, waiting for someone else to get there first. Or maybe it'll all be over by the time I get them and stuff, you know. So Yeah, so yeah. Now, nobody wants to own it. And uh, when you show up on scene, you have to take action and you have to own it and own your, own your actions. And so since I've been in this office, I've got to meet tons of people. I got to meet you. I was yeah. happy to do so. He helps people of faith-based groups, military, law enforcement. We've been called now to uh, speak at insurance companies, hospitals, all that see the need for resilience. Their people in these professions are suffering from burnout, sometimes post-traumatic stress. We teach, you know, we want to have people to have post-traumatic growth. Yes. After you've been through a bad situation, don't be a throwaway. Don't be a casualty. Come back stronger. And how do you do that? So it's been good, this transition. And what have you learned? So, I mean, like, Brofman's known for, for many things and a lot of, well, I saw him spoke to yesterday, you know, about the mindset. I guess what's been the biggest change, perhaps, as to how you looked at law enforcement or how you looked at deadly force since working so closely with such a sort of internationally renowned scholar on the subject? What, what might be your biggest transformation or, or change of viewpoint since working with him? Yeah, so some of the things that I've learned from him just solidified in my mind yeah, that's how I thought. That's how I believed. That's how I would respond. Talking to people all across the nation, at its core, police work is the same, but it is different compared to state to state and little department of five to a department of, you know, 500. Yeah. But all of us took an oath when we signed up for that job. And I do believe that some people have taken their oath more seriously than others. And so... I would encourage people to reevaluate and go, hey, am I doing things for the right reason? Because this isn't a career that you want to just go halfway and haphazard. You want to be on point. Uh, you want to be scored away. You want to know that you're doing something for a worthy cause. And if you can't do that, then maybe this job isn't for you. Yeah, and it's interesting you say that because I mean, I spent 14 years in, in British law enforcement, you know, leaving in 2011. I've heard 
but it's changed a lot and I can well believe it has. And the biggest thing that my friends say to me is that Simon, it's more of a job now than as a career because I think anyone in law enforcement that goes into it with those reasons to change the country, change the world for the greater good, you, you're not doing it for pay, that's for sure. You know, I mean, if you were, if you were being paid for the risk you're taking on, you know, you'd, you'd be driving around the Ferrari. I, I think those type of people seem to be changing. And if you're seeing that here in the US, maybe they seen more as a job than a career, but you go in with a passion to, to make those changes in the community. Is that something you might see from the American side, Mike, or do you have a different opinion? No, I agree. I think uh, as I was leaving the law enforcement career, there were newer people coming in and I think they were going to do it like, hey, I'm going to try this for a, a year or two to see if it works. Where when I came in, it was for the long haul and it was for a career. I wasn't just trying it out. So I know this whole defund the police movement the last few years has done nothing but hurt law enforcement as a whole. It's caused so many people to be discouraged. You want to talk about speaking truth? That's been a lie. Yeah. Cities haven't improved. They've gotten worse. And we talk about it. Colonel Grossman talks about it in his presentation, Justice for All. If we go one day in this country without law enforcement, there will be anarchy. And so we do need people to reconsider their mission and what their job assignment is and what they're called to do. We do need people when that 911 call comes out that they're rushing toward the danger while everyone else is fleeing. The day that we don't have that, it's a bad day in America. Yeah, and in England we used to call them like NIMBYs, not in my backyard. A lot of these people would say, you know, defund the police until their house gets broken into, their car gets stolen, they get assaulted, and then their mindset changes. So That's yeah, true. it is fascinating, yeah. Well, I'd love to hear, I want to move on to, I've got a few questions around church safety and security. So I know you were head of security for Northwest Valley Baptist Church in Arizona. So I wanna, uh, you were there for seven years. I want to pick your brains on that, but I'd just love to get a little bit before about how did, how did Mike Baldwin come to faith? What was your journey, your faith story? Well, gratefully, I grew up in a Christian home and my dad was a, a Baptist preacher of a small church in Arizona. And he was faithful to that small congregation for decades. And as a young boy, I knew my condition um, I knew that I was a sinner in need of salvation, and so I accepted Jesus into my heart, and I believed him by faith. I didn't understand everything about the gospel when you're young, but I believed him that he would do what he said he would do, and that is, if I confess my sins, he would forgive them. So I was saved and baptized and grew up in a Christian home, and so that is, I don't have this elaborate story of how I came to Jesus, but I'm also grateful that I didn't have to go through the worst that the world has to offer before I found them. Yeah, sometimes it's nice to meet a Christian like you that hasn't had to had that adversity and has come to faith at a young age. So that's powerful. Yeah, and, and maybe tell us about your journey into church security. Then I mean, we spoke a little bit before this interview. I've got a my mind's taken me somewhere as to how it came about. But how did you end up as being head of security in the Northwest Valley Baptist Church? Yeah, so my family started attending the church and. I would watch as they're taking up the offering and it was a decent sized church, you know, about 300, 350 people. And sometimes churches make a mistake. I think they post the offerings in the bulletin. And I know from being a detective, people are robbing the local convenience store for a hundred bucks. Yeah. We call that an invitation. If I appeared in a bulletin, I'd say that's an invitation for someone to come in and Assuming they're reading bulletins, of course, yeah. And the convenience store has sometimes uh, bars on the window. It has uh, security cameras, and they still do it. 
commit an armed robbery. So why wouldn't somebody go, hey, let me hit this local church where there's two guys carrying the money out and you might get $10,000. And so I talked to the pastor and I said, sir, this is what I see as a police officer on a daily basis. It's just a matter of time before our church becomes a target. And he's like, well, what do you suggest? And I said, well, initially, how about I walk out behind the guys that are carrying the offering until they go lock it up and make sure it's safe. And he said, fine. And then a couple months later, I said, how about we start a volunteer security here at the church? I said, churches are are no longer immune from violence. It used to be that churches were off limits from bad guys, but not anymore. With the drug use, the blurring of the lines, even bad guys nowadays don't respect the church or the congregation or God's house. So I met with him and a couple of the other leaders in the church, like the deacons, talked to them about what it might look like. And then I said, let's have a meeting at the church with some men who might be interested. And so I did a little presentation for them. I stood up in the front of the room and just started pulling out weapons that I had hidden on my person, a knife, a handgun, an ankle gun. I pulled out about seven guns, about three knives and laid it on the table. And guys were just amazed that I had all this stuff on me. And I said, it's easy to conceal a weapon and I go and I explain the sheepdog model. There are sheep, which is the congregation. There are wolves, which are the bad guys. And then there's sheepdogs, people like me that are looking out at the congregation, watching the exits. And I said, we need more sheepdogs in the church. And that truly appealed to about 15 guys. And so they signed up to be part of a part-time security team. And we gave some training and some of them In Arizona, it's the Wild West. You're allowed to carry a gun. You're allowed to carry a gun concealed. And so I found out that four or five of them were already carrying. They go to the range occasionally and train. And so it was just kind of a natural progression. I talked to the pastor that, hey, everybody that's involved in service needs to have a background check and be vetted. And the church was already proactive with that because anybody that had anything to do with working with children had to have a background check. And if they didn't want to have a background check, then they couldn't work with children. So I thought that was a very good rule. And that was the formation of the security team. And so we added uh, radios and little earpieces. And I had three or four guys assigned each week for each service to be on duty. And I kind of rotated it and I'd make the monthly schedule. And guys enjoyed it. Some of them said, you know what? This gives me an opportunity to serve within the church. I can't teach a class. I'm not a preacher. I can't sing at all, but now I'm able to be of service. And so some guys found their their calling, so to speak. And so it worked out great. Well, and it's really interesting you tell that story because I have a small Facebook group myself called Church Security Management. If anyone's not in the group, they should join. I mean, there's other Facebook groups out there, but I hear people all the time. And when I talk to people, they always say, well, Simon, you know, you work with mega churches. You don't know how I feel. Um, you know, you may have to budget and stuff. And I always say, but what Mike has just told us, but every church starts somewhere, you know, so we shouldn't look at people at larger churches assuming that they're not having pain and that their program just didn't start from one guy stepping in and saying, you know, I'll go first, I'll lead the way, I'll train people, I'll determine the classification, I'll get the radios, I'll get the budget. So I really want listeners to really tune into what Mike said there, that every church security program starts from one person saying, I'll go first. So that's great. And 
Right, so one of the questions, I'm going to take them in reverse order. I just had three questions around this. And you had a leader which was very receptive to the idea of church safety and security. I mean, from your experience in law enforcement, you know, as a leader, as a manager and being head of security, what would you say is the best way to soften a pastor's heart or leader's heart who isn't yet as engaged as your leader was? You, you know, someone's listening, trying to say, well, my pastor certainly isn't volunteering, get this team. What advice would you give from your experience? Yeah, so not everybody is receptive because if you say, hey, we have to have a security team, you almost have to admit that there could be a potential problem. And some people don't want to admit that, but you have to see reality. And so I would say maybe show them a post or a video of a school or a church shooting and point out the dangers and say, you know what? In today's day and age, 2023, we are almost negligent if we don't have some type of security. And we don't have to call it security. You can call it something else if you want, but have somebody watching the door, somebody watching the nursery, perhaps somebody watching when the guys carry the offering out, do it in part with maybe a medical team. You'll probably have more of a medical issue at your church than you will a security breach. Somebody's going to go down with a heart attack or someone's going to faint during the service because you have elderly people. Sometimes in churches, we have people that aren't in the best health and so you need somebody to be willing to call 911, direct the emergency response in, maybe a nurse or a doctor who goes to the church says, yeah, I'll be willing to be a volunteer, a good Samaritan. And that's how it starts. You almost have to create the need for it. So I was going to say, something you sort of said there is, you were talking about really about creating the expectation that in today's world, there is an expectation understanding that we have these things. When you sort of said about sharing articles, I, and I like how you sort of put that together there. It's really true that there is an expectation. And when someone's coming to our church, we're doing what we can to keep them safe because these things are occurring, as you mentioned earlier, that churches are no longer immune. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt, but I had a good hour while it was on my mind. No. And the thing is, we all believe in security, even when we don't think that we do. We lock our doors. We put our seatbelt on. Obviously, Colonel Grossman always talks about every building has a fire alarm, you know, or guarding against fire. Fire happens very rarely. We're more likely to have violence happen than a fire. And so if you just kind of redirect them that way and go, hey, pastor, God tells you in the Bible that you're to protect the flock. You're the one that's leading this church and guiding it. This is also an avenue of protection. And yeah, sometimes people think of the cost. It doesn't cost a whole lot to initially get started. If you later want to add radios and you want to add flashlights and you want to have security cameras, that's all good. And it's possible that maybe your insurance rate at your church goes down a little bit because you have all those things. And somebody coming to visit and they have children and they see that, oh, this church has security cameras. This has the security team. They might be more apt to join the church because now they feel safe. No, like my suggestions. And so leading on to then, right, convincing leaders and, you know, you were head of security for seven years. The other common question that comes up is, well, you know, you've been a leader, a manager, you know, now chief of staff. How do you keep sort of volunteers engaged or how did you keep your volunteers engaged? A lot of people pose that question. I often say we have to remember that these people are volunteers. They're donating their time. They're not employees, you know, they there's no performance plan at the end of this, but uh, I often say, just remember, you know, give them grace because they're volunteers. But what ways have you found, Mike, to, to keep your staff engaged on your church safety team? 
Yeah, so if I could go back based on what I know now, I would probably do more things and um, have more meetings from time to time. Also maybe have a, a dinner or a barbecue at my house where I invite the security team over and going, hey, you guys are volunteers. You're not being compensated for this, but I appreciate you. The church appreciates you and have a nice barbecue or something like that. That would be helpful. By the same token, allow people to have an exit too because they're volunteers. You're not locked into this for five years or 10 years. If one month you decide, hey, I don't want to do this anymore. I can't put my heart and energy into it. That's okay. We don't want that guy on our security team. And there's no hard feelings if he needs to do something else or go to another ministry. God has equipped all of us differently. And in the body of Christ or the church, not everybody can be the preacher. Not everybody can be the song leader. We each have a role to play. And so I would encourage people to find their role within the church where they can serve and help. And sometimes that's on the security team and sometimes it's not. I don't know how easy that because I mean, even my own journey in my own church, when I work with churches across the country, I'm always traveling. I, I've got two young sons, nine and 12. My, my time is often limited as well. And, you know, my, my role in our safety team now is more of a sort of strategic role, writing policies and procedures, helping with direction, you know, sort of influence and change because I myself don't have the time to commit like I used to. And I think, you know, there, there'll be a point when even my business model would change or have more time. And then I'll be out to, you know, walk around with, with the radio again, back with the guys. So I think it's good what you said there, but you can do this in seasons. It's never necessarily goodbye. It's, um, you know, Simon doesn't have the time right now to commit because I'm traveling and teaching others about church security, which is part of my ministry. Maybe in a year's time, I'll come back into the fold. But for now, um, you know, I can't do that because I hear a lot of people in groups say, well, well how do I get the engagement? It's, well, you know, have some honest conversations with people and say, hey, Mike, have you, is your heart still in this or what's the problem? And Mike might say, well, I've got two young kids. My wife's asking for other commitments. There's other hobbies. You know, I don't have the time to give. Well, as you said, maybe there's another way to either serve the church or serve the team in a different way. Reading policy and procedures, creating training manuals, writing PowerPoints, you know, whatever it might be. So, yeah. And if you have enough guys where you could rotate, a guy doesn't have to be on security every single service. And so he does get to sit with his family and hear the message from time to time because there's more people to carry and share the burden. Yeah. And that's also helpful too. So yeah, I think uh, there's a number of ways that a church could do something, but I would say the first thing is to start somewhere. Start small and have something in place for your own family, for others. And if there isn't a church security in place at the church where you go, then you be that sheepdog. You pay attention to what's going on and maybe sit strategically in the church where you could get out quickly and take action if need be. Yeah, so a good friend of mine, he has a, a Christian podcast called Dad Awesome, and it's all about sort of authentic fatherhood. And he always says, you know, I'll go first. Be that person to step in and say, rather than wait for the next person to start it or do something, you know, I'll go first. You step into, you be the person to say, we need a team, we need training, or Simon's got other commitments. I'll step in, I'll, I'll go first in there. So I, I like how that ties together with what you said, Mike. And the, the third piece I really want to talk about was around emergency operations plans and again i want to remind the listeners that you know mike started from a conversation with his pastor to then being the head of security 
is around emergency operations plans. So I know you've taken this from ground zero to sort of a, a program. So I'd love to get your perspective and advice around um, churches and members that are trying to get their emergency operations plan where they feel it needs to be. That's always a big question. How, how do I grow it? How do I build it? What should be in it? Yeah, so there's always liability with anything. And so at any business, they have operating procedures on how they do certain things. Sometimes businesses don't follow those procedures, and then later on they might get sometimes. in trouble. <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> so it's kind of daunting task initially. Okay, how do I do this? Well, I would reach out to a sister church that's close to you and find out if they have a security team and if they have something in place and have them send it and say, hey, can I look at this? Can I use this as like a rough draft for our church? And kind of tailor it and fit it. Most people would see that as a compliment. Maybe a big mega church has different rules and procedures and training in place that a smaller church wouldn't necessarily use. So you delete that part and you use the parts that fit your church. But there's something down on record. Occasionally during these meetings, maybe I would pass out the procedure to everybody so they understand and read it and sign it. And then we have to use it and do it. It's one thing to have it on paper. Practice it's another thing it, right? to, in practice. Same thing at the police department. There's the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. The letter of the law is this big policy book and you have to follow it and do it this way. However, I know that when I'm out on the street making a decision, I know what the policy says and I can operate to a T or I can go, this is the spirit of the law and I'm going to operate within the spirit of the law. I've done both. I've been in trouble before because I have a, a leader, a weak leader or a commander who goes, oh, you didn't do it by the by the book. Yeah, but I got the job done. I got the mission accomplished. And so I tend to operate within the spirit of the law when it comes to church security, when it came to my policing on the street, how I engaged, how I talked to people. Maybe one thing might be as simple as this, as a police officer, it's our policy that anybody arrested cannot smoke outside the holding facility or something like that. Great. In practice, I know that a lot of these suspects were nervous and having a cigarette would calm them down and I would give them a cigarette, they would smoke it and then go in and confess to a crime just because now they were relaxed. And so I try to operate within the spirit of the law. Well, and I like what you said there, because that, that is so true. And here's how I related to church security, but a lot of people send me their operation manuals to read, to offer views and opinions on. And most often, well, we've done a couple of things. They've gone on, I think there's a First Baptist Church, not in Arizona, but somewhere on the West Coast. And everyone always finds, whenever you Google church operations plan, this First Baptist one comes, they've either copied it word for word, which I said, you don't need to do that. You can just do it in your own words, but they'll copy but the big thing that I see about a lot of these operations plans is that they make them so detailed that it removes common sense. It removes the ability for it to be malleable and to apply it to different situations. So just added on from what you had said, I really encourage the listeners to um, don't make it so rigid that you're going to trap people because they need to use their common sense. And every situation is, is different. It really is. But the discretion, you'd call it in the police, right? Use your discretion as to how you sort of the spirit of the law is what you said, Mike. We'd say we'd say discretion in England here most probably spirit of the law. 
Yeah, so I, I enjoyed using my discretion as a police officer. And as I got older and more experienced, that discretion came into play many times, whether or not to make the arrest, whether or not to handle the situation a certain way. Same thing in a church setting. I would agree with you 100%. Tailor this operations manual to your church. Don't try to copy the big mega church and don't make it so restrictive that you take away your discretion. Because I would say situations change and move and you don't want to be bound by, oh, you had to yeah. follow this 10-step policy. No, make it simple. Keep it simple, stupid. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's what I Yo, say. Yes. Yeah. Because what you really want, all you want someone to do in a highly charged, highly stressful situation or an emergency is to make good decisions based off the information that they have on hand. You know, how best to evacuate, how best to lock down when there's an active shooter. When a father comes in, he's got a non-contact order, he's shouting and screaming, he wants to see his son. You know, you've got a 17-year-old girl working in preschool. What what do you want her to do? A lot of it is just about encouraging critical thinking and building the preparedness around it. So, yeah, that, that is the biggest thing I'd say. I see outside of denial of danger, I see emergency operations plans that are, that are just so constricted because the person just wants to get it so right and write everything down. It removes all discretion, all flexibility, and it has the adverse effects when there's a when there's an emergency. Yeah, and you probably cannot cover every situation that could happen in an operations manual. So you give a skeleton for best practices and how to do things safely. And the key is to make a decision. The worst thing is to make no decision and just to yeah. be frightful and freeze. I want people who can make decisions. So guess what? I want just common sense people. You don't have yes. to be super smart. I just want somebody who makes common sense decisions and they can work on my team. And it's like having a child, I don't know where it is in scripture, but it's when they say, train a child up in the way they should go and they won't depart from it. You're never going to be, with my two sons, I'm never going to be there. I mean, they're at school right now while recording this podcast. They're making decisions, but their decisions are based off how I'm educated them as a, as a father. So I don't expect to be in every decision in their life, but I know their decision is going to be more sound because as a father... I'm heavily engaged and I'm trying to give them the tools necessary so when those things do happen, they have the resiliency to to sort of stand up against um, bad things happening to them. No, that's right. And my dad used to quote the same scripture. It's in Proverbs. Proverbs, okay. I believe it as well. And I had children that when they were younger, I made all the decisions for them. As they get a little older and they're not with me, hopefully they're going to make decisions that their dad would make or that their mom would make. And now that they are in adulthood and they're on their own, I still want to be part of their life, but I can't be in every decision. I want them to call me and say, Dad, you know, I'm thinking of doing this. What do you advise? But hopefully I've trained them properly throughout these years with a biblical worldview and common sense that now they do the same for themselves and their family when they get married. Yeah, and, and it, it is true. I mean, we're, we're talking about just giving people the tools to make decisions. Most often, I mean, when I worked in Mall of America and there was bomb threats that used to come in, most often my, they would always occur when I was sat at home on my couch with a rum and coke with my feet up and I'd either see it on the news or someone would ring me and my number two was in the chair, you know. But again, I'd trained the, my number two up so she was ready for those emergencies. So, yeah, good stuff. 
Well, so, so Mike, so we've covered how to convince leaders of the need for security. We, we touched on emergency operations plans and how to build engagement. So uh, I know my listeners are going to get a lot from this conversation. So really grateful you've taken time out to come and join me. And I know that uh, you and Lieutenant Colonel Dave Graceman, you're still traveling around the US. He's got his new book, book out on hunting. Um, if people are interested in getting you on their podcast to learn more or talking to Dave Graceman, what's the best way for people to, to find you, Mike? Yeah, so a lot of times people will reach out to our office because they want to schedule him for a presentation or speak to me to ask additional questions. So Mike at GrossmanOnTruth.com and I will respond in a timely fashion and get you the information that you need. Sounds good. Well, Mike, um, I know I met you at the FBSN last summer. It's been an honor and a privilege to have you on the podcast. Great to get to know you and I can't wait until we're together again in person. So thanks for joining me today. All right, Simon, it was good to be with you. Have a blessed week. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Church Security Made Simple podcast. If you're looking for training on how to keep you and your church community safe, or if you're interested in working with me on my five-week group coaching program, please head over to worshipsecurity.org. And if you've enjoyed this podcast episode, don't forget to rate and review wherever you are listening. Now, I'll be back with you on the next episode, but until then, stay safe, have a blessed day, and remember, always plan, prepare, and protect your ministry.